You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Neuroendocrine tumors are relatively rare and can be either sporadic or inherited. How can physicians determine which patients might be at risk for developing endocrine tumors and what are the symptoms and signs of this rare syndrome? Joining us to discuss gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumors is Dr. David Metz, Professor of Medicine and Associate Chief for Clinical Affairs in the Division of Gastroenterology at Penn Medicine. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Metz. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Well, when I think of neuroendocrine tumors, I think back to medical school when I was trying to memorize MEN1 syndrome, MEN2 syndrome. Is that a good way to think about these type of processes? Well, yes, to some extent, because clearly the MEN syndromes are the hereditary types of neuroendocrine tumors that we see, but it actually doesn't really fit well for gastroenteropathic neuroendocrine tumors specifically because MEN2 actually doesn't have an association. So MEN2, if you remember, is medullary carcinoma of the thyroid, pheochromocytoma, and parathyroid tumors. And MEN1, on the other hand, is all the Ps. So it's pituitary, parathyroids, and enteropancreas. So MEN1 does have an association with these, these tumors. However, most of the patients who get neuroendocrine tumors don't have MEN1. And in fact, there are other hereditary syndromes that are associated, such as von Hippel-Landau, uh, neurofibromatosis, and those sort of conditions. So MEN1 is certainly part of it, but isn't the whole deal, and not all MEN1s get intrapancreatic tumors. I see. So that's probably not the best way to think about this. Uh, when we're talking about a neuroendocrine tumor, we're talking about a tumor that comes from nerve cells but also is hormonally active. Is, is that correct? Yes. I think from a pathologic point of view, we talk about neuroendocrine tumors as being tumors that have both neural and endocrine features and classically on immunohistochemical staining come up positive for products such as chromogranin A or neuron-specific interlays and have a phenotype that looks endocrine in its presentation, resulting in that neuroendocrine determination. So neuroendocrine tumors really can occur anywhere in the body. And in fact, a pheochromocytoma, as I alluded to, which is a renal or adrenal tumor looks very similar under the microscope to medullary carcinoma of the thyroid or a small cell carcinoma of the lung or a neuroendocrine tumor of the pancreas causing Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. So from a pathologic point of view, the appearance of these tumors is very similar, which is why they combined in terms of their presentation, but they can occur in all sorts of different places and do all sorts of different things depending on what products they make. I see. How frequent do we see this in the population? These tumors are all very rare, but it really depends on the presenting symptoms. So if you take autopsy specimens, we know that about 1% of all dead people have a neuroendocrine tumor in the pancreas. That's actually incredibly common. So the first point is they're probably a lot more common in reality than what we see from a clinical perspective. And from a clinical perspective, they're very rare mostly because they don't do much. So the majority of neuroendocrine tumors in the pancreas or elsewhere in the alimentary tract don't produce any hormonal syndromes. And if they don't produce syndromes, the way that they ultimately will present is only when they get metastatic and you get tumor effects. So that means long-standing, widely metastatic growing disease, and that has to be around for a long, long time, and many people don't get symptomatic until late and therefore don't present. So the majority are non-functional. Then, of course, those that are functional 
we do have a better idea in terms of their presentation because if you have a tumor making gastrin giving you Zollinger Ellison syndrome, for example, you're going to have diarrhea and belly pain and abdominal symptoms and you get seen by a doctor. So probably more of the functional tumors actually do present during life, but they too are very rare. The most common one is the carcinoid syndrome producing tumor, and that is about 0.5 or 1 per million. Next most common would be Zollinger-Ellison tumor, which is primarily in the duodenum in the pancreas, and that's about 0.5 per million. These are incidence figures. Then comes the insulinoma, which is roughly about the same, and then all the others are rare, the vipoma and glucagonoma, insulinoma, somatostatinoma, GRFoma, etc., etc. So their incidence is very low, but it is important to realize that their prevalence is very common. So it's been estimated that there are probably 100,000 patients in America running around with widely metastatic neuroendocrine tumors right now. So because the diseases are generally indolent, at least early on, and grow slowly, it's not like with pancreatic cancer, for example, similar incidence to prevalence, whereas in this condition, the incidence is low, but the prevalence is very high because people stick around for a long time. So we do see a lot of these patients because once diagnosed, they remain under care for many, many years. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD Radio and XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me discussing gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumors is Dr. David Metz, professor of medicine and associate chief for clinical affairs in the Division of Gastroenterology at Penn Medicine. Dr. Metz, in terms of the gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumors, is there some approach to diagnosis? Yeah, we, we certainly have various ways of looking for these tumors based on how they present, and they present in a variety of different ways. So the usual functional tumors present with typical hormonal syndromes. And I hate to say this, but the truth of the matter is that there's a tremendous lag between symptoms and diagnosis because they're relatively vague in their presentation. So it's hard to tell the difference between Zollinger-Ellison syndrome and run-of-the-mill acid peptic disease. Similarly, it's hard to tell the difference between irritable bowel syndrome and the beginnings of the carcinoid syndrome with diarrhea and possibly with flushing. So often these patients have a long lag, five, six, seven years before they ultimately are diagnosed. But the first way to think about looking for these diseases is if you have a classic symptom complex, you need to think about each of the tumors dependent on that complex. The second way these people become discovered is when you get an imaging test for some other reason. So somebody has belly pain or having their kidneys evaluated and they get a CAT scan and all of a sudden the lesions are identified. So those are often asymptomatic patients. And classically, small bowel carcinoids can be very large before they metastasize to the liver and release products giving the carcinoid syndrome, and they can therefore be picked up earlier on, possibly before the metastasis have occurred. Unfortunately, what often happens with carcinoid syndrome of the small bowel, which is quite a devastating disease because it requires extensive surgery and has lots of symptoms associated, what happens is the tumor makes product. That product doesn't cause the classic carcinoid syndrome because the product is delivered to the liver and inactivated before it gets into the bloodstream. So it's only when the metastasis have spread to the liver and they themselves then send out secondary products into the general circulation that you get the wheezing and the diarrhea and the flushing, pellagra, cardiac disease. So those patients often present with metastatic disease. So it's interesting in that the different tumors present in different ways at different times. ZE, Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, from a gastrinoma, 
because the symptoms are so severe, often presents very early with diarrhea, belly pain, ulcer disease. Now, you could put those patients onto anti-secretory therapy and miss the ZE, which is common, but that will present initially when the tumors are very, very small, tiny. On the other hand, as I've alluded to, carcinoid syndrome from the small bowel may present very, very late. Metastasized to the liver. And at that stage, your treatment has to be directed against the metastatic disease. So when they're young and small and tiny, these tumors grow slowly and are indolent. But as time goes on, they rev up their turnover and tumor bulk is correlated with rate of growth. So later stage disease ramps up and starts looking like a carcinoma as opposed to a carcinoid. So it sounds like clinically, if we have somebody with severe ulcer disease, we should think about a gastrin level. We have somebody with the wheezing and diarrhea, 24-hour urine to look for hydroxy and acetic acid, et cetera. Are, are there any other screening tests? You, you mentioned the uh, chromogranin A. Can that be useful to find all types of neuroendocrine tumors? So there are two points out of that. First of all, just before I forget, let me mention that getting a gastrin level in isolation is not a good thing. So we must realize that most gastrin in the body comes from G cells in the gastric antrum. And those cells make gastrin that drives acid secretion. But those cells are responsive to the level of acid production, which is controlled by somatostatin release from D cells. Therefore, when you eat, you make gastrin, your gastrin drives acid output, but you make acid that then switches off the gastrin. So you get a feedback loop, classic endocrine feedback loop. If the gastrin is up, you need to know if the acid is up or not because the more common cause for a high gastrin is drugs, proton pump inhibitors, acid suppressants, or pernicious anemia, atrophic gastritis, when you don't have parietal cells. Those people are hypergastrinemic because they're trying to restore acid production. It's an appropriate hypergastrinemia. Far more common than Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. In Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, the gastrin comes from the tumor. The stomach makes the acid. That does not switch off the G cells that are making the tumor gastrin because they're in other places, the pancreas or the duodenum, whereas the antral G cells are suppressed. So high gastrin with acid is a clue to ZE. High gastrin without acid is actually more common and is seen in pernicious anemia and drugs. Do you check stomach acidity at the same time you do a gastrin, or how, how do you make that judgment? Absolutely. It's very important to realize that an isolated gastrin is not a valid measurement unless you know that that person is producing acid. So what I do is, at the time of endoscopy, collect gastric juice and would measure a gastrin and then have a gastric juice available at the same time. I must tell you that does, since it's for your audience, that that does require clear licensure to be able to measure pH on gastric juice, although you can also just suck it up into a tube and send it off to the lab. But a gastrin with acid is what you need to know. Thank you for clarifying that. And, and then is there a role for this chromogranin A or other more generalized screening techniques in making the diagnosis? Right. The important point in terms of monitoring of these patients or screening for possible neuroendocrine tumors is that there are general markers that you can measure in the blood. Chromogranin A is a product of neuroendocrine tumors and has a very good correlation with the presence of neuroendocrine tumors. So we would measure a chromogranin A level, and if it's elevated, it should have some correlation with tumor bulk. Again, there are false positive causes for chromogranin A going up. The most common, surprisingly enough, is also 
proton pump inhibitor use because by being on a proton pump inhibitor, you lower your acid output, you switch off your D cells, you get G cell hyperplasia, which is the cause of that hypergastrinemia, and those G cells are neuroendocrine cells, so they can give you an elevated chromogranin A. And I see lots of patients who actually have elevated chromogranin A on a false basis. But if you're not talking about acid peptic disease, and there's no reason for these people to be on PPI therapy, the chromogranin A is actually a very good marker of neuroendocrine tumors in general. They have nothing to do with the carcinoid syndrome specifically. So I'm trying to make this distinction here between carcinoid tumors as a pathologic diagnosis, which is really a misnomer and something we're trying to get away from, and carcinoid syndrome, which is a specific neuroendocrine tumor in the alimentary tract that makes products giving you flushing and diarrhea. So the carcinoid syndrome, the specific test would be urinary 5-HIAA, as you mentioned. Serum serotonin can also be measured, not as accurate, but it is also available. So if you have a high 24-hour urine 5-HIAA, that would fit with the carcinoid syndrome-producing neuroendocrine tumor. You could have a very high chromogranin A and a totally normal urine 5-HIAA if you happen to have a glucagonoma or a vipoma or a pancreatic-producing tumor. So the chromogranin A is really non-specific for neuroendocrine tumors in general. The 24-hour urine 5-HIAA is for carcinoid syndrome specifically. Gastrin is for gastrinoma specifically. VIP would be for the vipoma, vasoactive intestinal polypeptide secreting tumor that gives you diarrhea, glucagon for glucagonoma, etc., etc. There also is another marker that people should know about called pancreatic polypeptide, PP. And the PP level is up in pancreatic endocrine tumors specifically. So that's a marker that you could have a high PP and a high chromogranin A. That would suggest it's pancreatic. A low PP and a high chromogranin A would suggest that it may be out of the pancreas and somewhere else in the alimentary tract. Well, I very much want to thank my guest from Penn Medicine, Dr. David Metz. Dr. Metz has outlined for us the array of neuroendocrine tumors. He talked about the difference between prevalence and incidence and how only a fraction of these tumors actually can produce symptoms and how although they have a very common pathology when looked at under the microscope, they present with an array of different symptoms and different hormone production. This has been very interesting, and I thank you again, Dr. Metz, and I thank you all for listening. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.